didn't even know you were here. Oh, well, say, maybe I'm not here. What? Well, was I here yesterday? Uh, no. Well, then probably I'm not here today. I don't <laughs> travel too much. Uh, uh, listen, uh, Mr. Bergen... Am I supposed I... to be here? Well, of course. Oh, yeah. You'll have to excuse Mortimer. He's a little bit slow. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's probably why I'm not here Yeah. Hi-ho, and welcome once again to a feat of lunatic daring, the most sensational, inspirational, celebrational, muppetational podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. My name is Chad. I'm here with my co-host and certified wild and crazy guy, Nick Jackson. Nick, how are you doing tonight? I am so very happy that it's Friday. I, I can't put it to words. There's a good side to the downside to recording this on Friday nights. One, it's like, ah, the week's over. And it's also like, ah, oh, I'm tired. My weeks don't stop, sir. Six or seven nights a week. I'm going to get off of this and go edit another podcast. It's 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 good times for all. It's better to be busy, I guess. All right. So uh, this is a feat of lunatic daring. Of course, we are a podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. Before we get started talking about these episodes tonight, I'd like to remind you to check us out on social media at Lunatic Daring on Facebook, Instagram, and the hell that is Twitter. Sorry, I have, I've had a Twitter's just really been awful lately. I don't hear good things about Twitter. Just like as a rule, everyone who's on it feels like they're obligated to be on it. Yes. And then hates being there. I quit for three years. The only reason I got back on Twitter was because I started this show. <laughs> it's literally the only reason I have Twitter. But it got me back into it, and uh, it's, it can be rough. Some of it's great. The idea of it is great. In execution, it's just a bunch of awful people being awful. Because, like, you, you know, you, you're supposed to interact with people, but no one can, in a, in a you know, tweet or whatever it is, people always expect the worst of anyone who's tweeting at them. So if you ask a question, they will assume you're attacking them. Oh, I, I hate that. Where, like, always. I hate the idea that anything's beyond scrutiny. To be fair to them, a majority of the people are just attacking them and being assholes. And so when you interact with someone and you're like, well, what about this? You know, asking a genuine question, they get real salty and you're like, whoa, whoa, dude, I was just, I'm sorry, you were, you, you said something and I responded. I thought that's what this was about. And then you jump on me for asking a question or, or something. Um, Brian Lynch, who's a big Muppet fan. He got famous for selling a Muppet script that never got made. And as a writer, he wrote like the Despicable Me movies and stuff, you know? Mm -hmm. Twitter one day, he was like, I would love to see a Muppet remake of It's a Wonderful Life. And I just tweeted back and I go, well, they already kind of did that, right? With a very merry Muppet Christmas movie. And he retweeted me and tore into me and said, oh, great. Twitter's great. And I was like, what did I do? I was just saying like, oh, that's kind of what they did there, right? And I got dogpiled on. And I was like, well, I'm done with you. And I'm done with talking to people, I guess. It kind of brings out the worst in people. And, and even people who seem to be nice, who seem to be, they're just getting attacked all the time. And so anytime it's ruined it for everybody else is the problem. I feel like Tyson has said something about people being disrespectful on Twitter because they're not used to dealing with people just coming in and smacking the shit out of them. The, the celebrities, the famous people, the people that you're following on there that you, you know, want to hear interesting things from or interact with. Some of them are super cool, but they get so much shit. They get so much negative that it's real easy for them to interpret what you said as negative. Mm -hmm. I won't even get into the cesspool that is currently magic Twitter. <laughs> And lunaticdaring.com, where you can see our watch list, our bibliography, and all of our episodes. What you don't know is that in between those things, Nick and I have just talked for 45 minutes about Dungeons & Dragons. So, Nerd! we're not going to waste any more time. Let's get started. Let's get things started. It's 
Smith Show with our very special guest star, Mr. Edgar Bergen. All right, Nick, so we've had Candace Bergen on the show before, last season. And we know what a big influence Edgar Bergen was on Jim Henson and on, on any kind of puppeteer of his generation. So tell me a little bit about Edgar Bergen and his, uh, his wooden buddies. Edgar Bergen was born in Chicago, Illinois, on February 16th, 1903. He was the child of Swedish immigrants. I, I should mention that his name's going to sound very similar to the way that it was originally pronounced, but there was an extra G and an extra R in there, so it's Bergren. He would eventually drop the G, the extra G and R. He and his family lived on a farm near Decatur, Michigan, until he was four, at which point they returned to Sweden. They would eventually end up back in Chicago. He taught himself ventriloquism at age 11 with this thing called the Wizard's Manual Pamphlet. <laughs> okay. Which I'm imagining looks a little bit like the, uh, the machine from Big, the fortune-telling machine. I can't remember which one it was. He ended up working a series of odd jobs starting at age 16 after his father passed. He would continue to practice his ventriloquism in the meantime, and he actually ended up receiving lessons from a famous ventriloquist named Harry Lester for about three months because Lester was so impressed with what he taught himself up to that point. He paid a woodcarver to sculpt a head, the head that would eventually become the head of Charlie McCarthy, which would be his longest running, I guess you'd call it a performance partner. He paid the sculptor for the head. He ended up creating the rest of the body himself using things like rubber bands and wooden rods to make the jaw move. He would eventually go to Northwestern University for college, initially studying medicine to keep his mom happy, and then after that he moved to speech and drama and eventually dropped out. His first public performance was given at Waveland Avenue Congregational Church. They dedicated the church showroom to him, but I believe they named it named it after him as well. I've been going through some of the stuff that he was just doing as he was learning the craft. He, he sort of cut his teeth working in vaudeville before moving into one real movie shorts. He made the big time as it were, when he moved into radio. And it yeah. seems kind of strange now to imagine a ventriloquist getting very famous for performing on the radio. Evening papers, evening papers, read all about New Year's. What do you read? Just a moment, young man. Huh? What are you doing, selling papers in a broadcasting studio? Uh, yes, I was. Are you interested? Yeah. Where do you think you can get away with a thing like that? Why? Why, no one does anything like that. No. Have you seen anybody else selling papers here? Uh, no, that's why I thought it was a good idea. <laughs> well, did anyone give you permission to do that? Uh, well, I was, uh, no. No. <laughs> not actually. Not actually. No, not actually, no. Well, did anyone say anything at all about it? Uh, not a darn thing. Not a darn thing, no. <laughs> well, have you a ticket? <laughs> have you a ticket for the broadcast? A what? A ticket? Yeah. How did you get in? Uh, you have a ticket. Well, I was, uh... Have you a ticket? Uh, well, you see, I was I was walking past the door, see? Yes. And I saw a lot of people coming in, see? Yes. And I said, there must be a broadcast. All those people will be going in unless there's a broadcast, see? Yes. Uh, that's what I said to myself, see? Yes, but have you a ticket for the broadcast? Uh, not actually, no. Not actually, no. Super weird. But it was weird to him and the people that he was working with at the time. But the interesting thing about this, and one of the things that we'll notice as this episode goes on, is because he was working primarily in an auditory medium, it became way more important that Charlie would speak clearly than it was that he would be able to mask the fact that his mouth was moving. I may have noticed that. <laughs> yeah. Throughout the course of the episode tonight, you'll see his mouth move pretty consistently as Charlie talks, but there's almost this sort of allowance for it. It was part of the conceit, almost. 
like paradoxically, the ventriloquist dummy was known for his radio voice. Well, young man, uh-huh. what is going to happen to you? What's going to become of you? Well, so you know, only the other day, I said to myself, I asked myself the same question. You did? Mm-hmm. I had a long talk, confidential, of course. Yes. It was a closed conference. Yes. I said, uh, I said to myself, I said, uh, uh, Charlie, old boy. See, chummy-like. Yes. Uh, I says, Charlie, old boy, old boy, Charlie, see? Yes. I call myself by my first name. Oh, sorry. <laughs> After all, why shouldn't I? Yes. It was just an informal talk. Yes, I know. <laughs> he was discovered and offered a guest appearance on Rudy Valley's program on December 17th, 1936, which would lead to a regular cast role in the Chase and Seinburn Hour, running from May of 1937 to July of 1956. So something really interesting during this point in time, he met his wife because she was sitting front stage at one of his shows and he noticed her legs and asked to be introduced. She was a model. He would her for four years before they got married in 1945. He, he ended up seeing her at a show in 41. And I believe a year later, Candace was born. But this is one of the few, and he, he never divorced or remarried or anything like that. He legit saw her in the front of his audience was like, I'd kind of like to be with this woman and married her and stayed married for the rest of his life. His final public or his final screen appearance, I should say, was in the Muppet movie. Um, He would actually pass in 1978. He announced his retirement September of that year. Uh, He planned or he planned to send Charlie to the National Museum of American History he ended up opening his farewell tour at Caesar's Palace in Las Vegas for a farewell to show business tour on September 27th, but he died of kidney disease on September 30th, 1978. So I, I should say throughout the course of this episode, he seems like a very friendly, very jovial man. I'm sure he was a very nice man in his way, but he didn't leave anything to his kids. He left everything to the ventriloquist dummy, which... <laughs> I feel okay. like there's a part of me that wants to laugh at that, and there's another part of me that's patently afraid of ventriloquist dummies. I'm just wondering how much of Charlie was in there. I, as I say this, I saw Chucky at a very young age, but and also Goosebumps didn't do me any favors with Slappy the Dummy. But like when Candace was on, we talked about the fact that she kind of hated Charlie McCarthy, like that she grew up with a resentment towards him, and that was before this. I wonder how much it, how bad it was about a year later. <laughs> oh, I. Obviously, I didn't have any problems with Candace when she hosted or anything like that, but it's a material thing, and I don't think that's as important, but it's a it's a definite slap in the face. Like, that's effectively me telling my kids that I don't love my kids, and it's... If you're a lawyer and you're listening to this, please contact us and tell us how that would actually work. <laughs> like, where does the money actually go? It goes into the IP, I think. Right. Someone's got to own that and run that, though. Like, it's got to go to someone. For some reason, I'm thinking of that old Taco Bell chihuahua. <laughs> Yo quiero Taco Bell. She made so much money that she had a house. She had a team of caretakers that were paid to take care of her. Right. And it's so strange because it's not like the dog could actually make choices about anything. Yeah, because there weren't a million other chihuahuas in the world. <laughs> I guess they found the one chihuahua with a decent temperament. I don't know. Like, I just I just imagine Charlie like sitting in like a in the pool. He's having well, like a I don't know, like a Biggie Smalls type pool party or something. <laughs> it's it's such a weird thing to do and it's not even like an oversight thing because if you put that into a will it's intentional what about mortimer did he leave any money to mortimer mortimer didn't make enough money so i mean that's wrong too 
Charlie kept his soul. So, so I guess what we've pretty much figured out is that Charlie McCarthy is Edgar Bergen's Horcrux. Oh yeah, there is something about a ventriloquist dummy. It's like they're a tiny homunculus or something. Just it's a pre-digital Uncanny Valley thing. Yeah, and I don't think they necessarily look realistic. But and I could probably punt one. But there's just like one thing that I noticed watching this episode was, uh, man, Jim changed a lot. You know, we talk about Henson's accomplishments and the way he changed his art form and, and developed his art form. Watching Charlie McCarthy interact with the Muppets, I was like, oh, man, Jim really shook things up. Oh, yeah. Because if this was the most famous puppet in the world up until that point, I know he's a, a dummy. He's not a puppet, but whatever. Charlie McCarthy is the Muppets of the 1940s. Mm-hmm. They just run circles around him. <laughs> and we're gonna, actually literally in their first number. We're going to we're going to talk about, him, I think, one of the one of the weirder inversions in this episode. The Muppet Show, episode 207, produced from July 12th to July 15th of 1977 premiering in the UK on November 11th, 1977, and the United States on October 7th. Directed by Philip Casson, written by Jewel, Bailey, Henson, and Hinckley. We don't have any new faces for this episode. We do for the next one. We don't have any new faces for this episode. What we do have are, I did a count, approximately 7 million chickens. This is a very (laughs) poultry-heavy episode. Edgar Bergen, 25 seconds to curtain, Mr. Bergen. Oh, thank you. Did you hear that, Charlie? I, I, I just can't believe my eyes. Did he go yet? Yes, he just stuck his head in the door and left. Yeah, I don't, I don't mean him. In our cold open, when Scooter goes in to ask for our guest star, we see Edgar comforting Charlie, who can't believe his eyes because he sees a blue frackle. I mean him. I just can't believe my eyes. A stick of wood that talks. The frackle's confused because they see a talking piece of wood, and that's, it's going to set the tone for a lot of the humor that we get in this episode because Muppets get to realize that dummies are puppets while simultaneously not falling into that existential question of what they are. I actually thought this was one of the funnier moments of the episode. (laughs) Fair, yeah. There's, it kind of reminds me of the Santa Claus switch, and I can't quite articulate why, Uh, but something in the tone. Is it just the old guy? I don't know. He's, what, 73? Mm Mm-hmm. So we we move through the Muppet Show theme, and Gonzo's trumpet fires off a gunshot, which knocks him back out of the frame. We've seen the gunshot from the trumpet at least once before, I think. I mean, there's only so many things they can do, so we're going to see a lot of variations on the same stuff. Either you're going to have something come out of it that shouldn't, either it's going to make or it's going to make a noise that it shouldn't. <laughs> like, there's only so many things you can do with the gag. Uh, we we then move to an old friend of ours, which was one of the less terrifying parts of the Bremen musicians. Uh, T.R. the Rooster conducts a chicken choir who cluck out Babyface. Babyface was written by Harry Axe and Benny Davis in 1924. It's been recorded tons of times by countless people. But this is clucked, not so. The shot of the chickens in the audience following the open number was previously used after Gonzo's dancing chicken act in episode 204. It looks like TR is watching himself on stage. Which is why, you know, TR is the unsung hero of a David Lynch film. We just haven't seen it yet. This song, In This Way, is another song that was sung at the Henson Memorial. (laughs) Yeah, this thing is a very kind of standard Muppet thing, you know? Uh, Let's take some animals and have them make their noises, make the song or whatever. But, you know, it's a fun little energetic opener, I think. (laughs) 
backstage where uh, the chickens are having some issues with Kermit regarding their dressing room. And <laughs> Kermit, ever accommodating, decides that he's going to look into building them a coop out back. There's no way he's going to do that. No, but he does want to avoid the chickens union, and that's what's important. <laughs> yeah, he talks about how rough the chicken union is. <laughs> I could see it. The chickens are mean, man. Kermit meets Charlie McCarthy for the first time. It's weird to see them interact. It is. It was strange, right? It felt so generationally disjointed. There's that, and there's also that uh, Roger Rabbit aspect where I guess Charlie would be Bob Hoskins, or maybe Kermit's Bob Hoskins. I'm not really sure. I think Charlie is because, like, and this is one of the secrets of the Muppets, right? Is like, listen, we've done enough on this show that we we know how the nuts and bolts work, but Kermit still feels like a person to me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And Charlie doesn't. Charlie feels like a ventriloquist dummy. And so they have the ventriloquist dummy interacting with the puppets. And at the same time, I'm watching Edgar Burgett's mouth the whole time. It was very bizarre. And Charlie McCarthy is a dick. Was he always a dick? Was that the shtick? Yeah, no, because they Bergen would use Charlie. The fact that Charlie McCarthy was he was based on an Irish newspaper delivery boy that he knew when he was younger. But because he was a kid, he was able to slide stuff past the radar. So he would be very, very crass and he'd be very, very abrasive because... Everyone wrote it off as him being a precocious kid. Charlie's his way to say bad stuff without having to say bad stuff, I guess. Exactly. Like Prince and whatever that weird little like pole puppet was in Purple Rain. Um, <laughs> such a random addition to that movie, which was already really random. That movie rules. The soundtrack rules. Um, that movie's amazing. That, we'll stop. We'll stop the show right here. <laughs> Purple Rain is not a good movie, but Purple Rain is a great movie. There's a difference. It's one of the most quotable movies that I am not irritated by. I And keep in mind, I love the movie as bad as it is. It's not good. It's just awesome. Well, for starters, you have to purify yourself in the waters of Lake Minnetonka. What? You have to purify yourself in Lake Minnetonka. We, we see a, a sort of a parade of different Muppets come in to make Charlie kind of uncomfortable. We see Fozzie, we see Gonzo, Scooter, Janice randomly. Uncle Deadly, which is this the first time we've seen him this season? I don't think so. I think he's shown up, but not like huge. Uh, also the chickens, the pigs and monsters. And they all join Kermit in welcoming Edgar and Charlie by singing Consider Yourself. Consider yourself at home. Consider yourself one of the family. No, thank you. We've taken to you so strong. It's clear we're going to get along. Louise Gold is a full-time performer starting with this episode, though she'll still be uncredited until the next season. But her voice can be heard during the song. Yeah, Consider Yourself is from Oliver, uh, the musical. What I thought was funny about this was, you know how in the first season we would complain about, well, okay, I take that back. I would complain about the musical numbers that were just the guest star kind of sitting there while the Muppets sat around them. This is the the one over of that, because this is Charlie MacArthur and Edgar Bergen sitting there where all the Muppets are sitting around them singing. It felt like the same staging. There were a couple toward the end of the first season that we didn't mind as much because it was more interactive. It feels like a Muppet number that they just happen to be sitting in the middle of. Mm-hmm. I know McCarthy is like making jokes during it and that's kind of the bit is these kind of one-liners but to me like his jokes got buried in the song well they were punctuation if anything remember girls an egg a day keeps the hatchet away here's the bacon to go with the egg this next muppet news flash i think knocked my seven-year-old off the couch to be fair it's very timely for uh covid (laughs) 
<laughs> she was very, she thought it was very funny. Uh, we have the newsman come in. Dateline, the Muppet Show. An embarrassing situation developed today when the Muppet news reporter accidentally went on camera forgetting to put on his pants. <laughs> oh, good grief. One of the things that I love about this bit so much is someone set him up to do this. Like that paper was left there for him to read off of. Do you know what my favorite thing about doing the show is? Is us trying to figure out the logistics of these things and oh, trying to great. figure out what's really going on with the characters. For anyone listening who doesn't regularly associate with writers, this is what we do in our sleep. It's like, how do the logistics of this work? Psychologically breaking down what's going on with Julia Strange Pork or whatever just sounds like such a good time. Oh, yeah, it'd be great. If you imagine the scenario, that does mean that someone had to distract him enough to make sure he wasn't wearing pants. So that's someone in the wardrobe department, I guess. And then, yeah, and then they'd have to leave the note. So it's a very complicated prank. They had to leave the note. They also had to stress him out enough to know that he had to rush out there and just make that snap decision. Like, no one's going to see below the desk anyway. It's fine. We've compared him to Rod Burgundy, and he's not. But the fact that he'll read anything that's put in front of him. Go fuck yourself, San Diego. He should probably know he doesn't have pants on, but he doesn't know what he's about to read until he reads it. This guy's actually kind of prescient because people that I've talked to who have looked into journalism, especially since like the tens, have complained about the fact that you're expected to constantly be on social media as stories break. Like, you don't have time to really process the stories. It's just go, 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 especially with the 24-hour news cycle. I've grown to love the Muppet Newsman. Like, I actually think he's one of the more sympathetic characters on the show. He absolutely is. He's what Sam the Eagle thinks he is. He's mostly just a dude trying to do his job. He seems like an adult. He wears a tie, you know? And now, in a feat of grand daring never before seen on this planet, the great Gonzo will attempt to wrestle a six-pound red brick while completely blindfolded. The feat of grand daring. I saw that, yeah. We're getting there. We're not quite to the canon yet. Well, actually, let's talk about this for a second, because oh, of course. Gonzo wrestles a brick and loses. This is his first stunt of the season, right? Is this the first? I think this is the first great Gonzo stunt of the season. First thing I wrote down was he can smell bricks. Like all of a sudden, Gonzo's nose is like a bloodhound. I mean, there's a lot of nose there. Yeah, but we never established before that it gave him special powers. It's interesting. He uh, fights a brick and he gets very mad at Kermit afterwards. But oh, here's the other thing I wanted to mention about this, though. When he's sn so Gonzo's sniffing around like for the brick because he's blindfolded. He's acting like a Skeksis. I told you they share an ancestor. The noises he was making was pure Skeksis. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but remember, the Skeksis were partially based on the Frackles and Gonzo was a Frackle. They share a common ancestor. They do. They do. He is quite possibly one half of a celestial being in the world of Thra. But yeah, he he, he wrestles a brick and it uh, it wrecks him. Pretty much it. <laughs> he grabs it and it and it pins him. He gives him a nice solid pin. Kermit, you promised me a welterweight brick. Apparently this was a heavy hitter. It's good to see this new version of Gonzo still doing stupid Gonzo stuff, but being far more likable while doing it. They found that beat for him. So far be it from the Muppet Show to go meta. But when we go backstage again, we see that uh, Kermit's trying to get us ready for the next sketch. And Fozzie interrupts him to ask for supplies for his act. How is Fozzie becoming like my favorite character? They put a lot of work into it. I've never thought I would have never thought that. I just have fallen in love with Fozzie. <laughs> uh, Kermit, where's the glue? Uh, well, it's in the office. Where's oh. Piggy? Oh, also, I need some string and some paint. And do you have any black cloth? Uh, Fozzie, I'm trying to run a show around here. Oh, I know, Kermit, but you see, I'm on in a few minutes, and uh, my act's not ready. Uh, well, what act is that, Fozzie? Oh, well, you know uh, how Edgar Bergen gets screams of laughter just by talking with Charlie McCarthy? Uh, yeah, so? 
me and Chucky will knock him dead tonight. If Edgar Bergen can get screams of laughter with Charlie McCarthy, then clearly Fozzie should be able to do the same. And you notice his name, right? Speaking of your fear of ventriloquist dummies, we get Chucky. Hi, I'm Chucky. Wanna play? Fozzie has made a, a ventriloquist dummy named Chucky that he's going to use in his act. I mean, this is Fozzie who was a fan of dial-a-joke, so... Listen, he'll take any means necessary. He's a very pragmatic bear. All he wants is your laughter and your love. So if he needs to if he needs to use somebody else's jokes from a dial-a-joke, he'll do that. If he needs to build a real ghetto ventriloquist dummy, <laughs> he can do that. This, this is going to lead into probably the funniest moment in the episode. Yeah. As we left our heroes last time, the spaceship swine trek was on the verge of a hideous catastrophe. Well, before we get to what the hideous catastrophe is, let's talk for a second about the fact that both Dr. Strangepork and Link Hogthrob start to recognize what they think is a very unique talent that Piggy has. First of all, it's Captain Hogthrob to you. Have some respect while you're on the bridge. Go ahead. Yeah, he's... If anything, he demands respect. Um, there's a catastrophe, which is a carryover from the previous episode, which, like all the other continuations, we don't get to see. Never. This catastrophe sinking in, and they really need Miss Piggy for it, because yeah. only she can handle the independent heating and unifying element. <laughs> what they end up getting into is just needing her to iron their laundry because they're almost out of it. You want me to do the laundry? Well, of course. Nobody on the crew has had clean laundry for a week. <laughs> And I, like, it's not very often that I feel bad for Piggy. But in this particular case... This is real sexist. Well, not only that, but they moved the football. Because it's one thing for them to just be, like, unilaterally and uniformly like, oh, we're chauvinist pigs. But they built her up, and then they moved it. Well, and also remember previously, I think the last time we talked, there was the episode where she was like, I've been training for 11 years to push this button. She's the most trained, competent person on the ship. Mm -hmm. So it felt like another one of those, right? Like, only Piggy knows how to save us. But it turns out (laughs) they want her to do the laundry. Their evasive timing is very solid because I think she might have done a lot of damage with that iron if she'd connected. Yeah, no, I was expecting a little more violence (laughs) when she picked up that iron. They they get out the door in time. My favorite line, though, was, I am ready to do whatever is necessary to save the swine trek and her crew. I am at the service of all porkdom. They're making Piggy out to be the useful one. And then, yeah, and then they pull this little sexist joke about, oh, we need you to, you're the only one on this ship who can, I, and we see more crew members. Again, we see more additional pig crew members of the Swine Trek. The red shirts, I guess we'll call them. I guess they're functionally that. Yeah, they're they're unnamed. So they're they're basically red shirts. What'd you think of the UK spot? I just felt bad because I started overlaying the song with Kiss from a Rose by Seal. Did you know that when it snows, my eyes become alive and the light that you shine can't be seen. I kind of want to hear Rolf cover it because I don't think he'd play it straight and that would probably make it amazing. Um, but the song itself was fine. Ever since songwriters started writing songs, they have written songs about the rose. Red roses, blue roses, old roses, new roses, roses from the north and south and west. Yeah, it was fine. It was known as a Groucho Marx song, and he would perform it pretty frequently. It was never actually in any of the Marx Brothers films. Um, yeah, he sings Show Me Rose. Show me a rose, or leave me alone. Show me a rose, and I'll show you a storm at sea. Show me a rose, or leave me alone. 
by was it Bert Calamar and Harry Ruby? Go down where the palm trees sway. I called her Rosa Mia, and she called a spade a spade. Pretty much all I got. <laughs> Like it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a nice little UK spot. I didn't find UK it particularly. Spot. Yeah, I didn't find it particularly. You're right. It's a classic UK spot. It's a season one UK spot. From there, we go back backstage. Fozzie stops by Edgar's dressing room to get advice and meet Mortimer, which I think is this the only time we see Mortimer this episode? Yes, this is the only Mortimer. Mortimer snurred scene. Could I come in and talk for a minute? Well, of course you can, Fozzie. Oh, good. And it's good to see you again. Uh, you know Mortimer Snurd, of course. Oh, well, of course. I recognize this charming, handsome-looking gentleman. No. Yeah. <laughs> he says a darn new thing. It's sort of, speaking of the Marx Brothers, it's effectively a who's on first sketch with Mortimer not thinking that he's arrived yet because a smart person would have made it there on time. And he wasn't there the day before, and he rarely travels, so he's not actually there, which is all very existential. In case you didn't get the joke, uh, Mortimer's real dumb. I didn't know if that, I don't know if that landed with you. It was about as subtle as that brick that landed on Gonzo, but yeah. That's kind of the whole thing, is Mortimer's just kind of a dumb hayseed. It's a little, it's a funny back and forth, though. Well, if I were faster, I'd be here though now. Oh. <laughs> Listen, Mortimer, take my word for it, you are here. Well, thank goodness. Now, are you through? No, I'm here. Yeah, all right. <laughs> But haven't you any brains at all? Well, well, not with me, no. I'll ignore that. Fozzie, what can I do for you? It's a wordplay bit. It's a fine addition, and it's a good way for them to play off of Fozzie as well. We tell my girls, like, not to call people stupid. <laughs> and this scene didn't help that. Like, they're very upfront about him being stupid. I think Fozzie even calls him stupid. He agreed with him too, didn't he? Boy, Mortimer, you are stupid. Yeah, yeah. He is stupid. <laughs> Mortimer was a big character of his, but obviously because of the way he works, he can only have one at a time. Mm -hmm. right? So you can't have Charlie and Mortimer interacting. You could on the radio because he had other characters, I think, but these were his two big ones. Mm -hmm. So they had to give Mortimer a scene. But that leads to... Fozzie finally goes on stage with Chucky. Not the terrifying Chucky, but the dummy that doesn't seem to want to cooperate. This Chucky's a little unsettling. He is. Once again, Fozzie's not really in on how things work, which is where... The episode gets more surreal. This is Bergen's fault. Because Bergen just told him that, like... Well, our act is easy. Huh? Yeah. I, I sit on the stage and talk, and, and Bergen stands next to me and uh, moves his lips. But yes, Fozzie comes out with Chucky, and he, he keeps setting Chucky up for jokes, expecting the dummy to deliver the punchline on his own. Well, once again, it's time for everyone's uh, semi-favorite funny man... Uh, or, or favorite semi-funny man, or, or whatever. Uh, Fozzie has something new in mind for tonight, so summon your courage and welcome, if you will, Mr. Fozzie Bear and Friend! Uh, thank you, thank you, thank you. It's Fozzie and Chucky time! Uh, 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 Chucky, hey, who was that lady I saw you with last night? This is funny. Uh, uh, Chucky, who was that lady I saw you with last night? This is very meta, right? 
it's meta. It's also speaking of thinking about the implications of things because of the way the, the bit ends. Fozzie created a life. It's so funny, though, when he starts shaking Chucky, he's like, Chucky, why don't you answer me? He's very disappointed that Chucky's not talking to him. OK, Chucky, listen, uh, why does a chicken cross the road? <laughs> Why does a chicken cross the road, Chucky? Say something, anything. And then Kermit comes out and explains to Fozzie that's not how ventriloquist dummy works. He does that little whisper in his ear, but you can hear what he's telling him. Listen, Fozzie. Mm-hmm. It's the ventriloquist who actually does the talking. Yeah. Does it? Yes. Really? Mm-hmm. No moving lips? Nope. Okay, okay, I got it now. So then Fozzie does another attempt at it. And he delivers the punchline for the joke without moving his lips, but you can't understand what he's saying. Uh, Chucky, <laughs> who was that lady I saw you with last night? <laughs> After he gets a laugh with that, Fozzie's satisfied, but he just leaves Chucky on stage and then Chucky talks. <laughs> Actually, I spent the night alone. A little creepy. Just a bit, but also kind of sad. Also kind of sad, but you're right, though. Maybe Fozzie has created life. That's not sad. Which actually kind of leads us into our next bit, which I like a lot, but also... This is a classic. I've never heard the song before, but the whole bit's pretty sad. It's very melancholy. If I could save time in a bottle, the first thing that I'd like to do is to save every day till eternity passes away just to spend them with you we've got a, a scientist singing time in a bottle originally released by jim croce in 1972 from the album you don't mess around with jim so the the scientist is drinking things from beakers and flasks getting younger as he does and they change his voice as he gets younger which is a really nice touch it's jim playing him is jim doing all of the voices or just yeah no that's all jim it's all jim yeah he's just changing his voice as, as the character gets younger and younger the scientist is trying to make himself younger so he keeps drinking potions and every time he drinks a potion there's a cut and then you cut to a different puppet or just a modified version of the puppet hearing that jim was the one performing it it makes me think of timepiece because it's it's running on yes. a similar theme like not just that it's about time but the shortage of it and i guess the pressure that comes with it this uses a lot of those same tricks of making us aware that they're a puppet by having this transformation however it's much more emotionally resonant there's actually a real emotional reason why we're going through this transformation with this character. It's not just cuz. Just for wishes and dreams that had never come true. The box would be empty except for the memory of how they were answered by you. You know, Jim's ticking clock. Was that Jerry Jewell said he was always running from time something that was that was in him ever since his brother died and so the song probably means a lot to him I was impressed like there's some cool stuff in there though when he like I'm sure it's just like baking soda he puts into the beaker this is just a classic Muppet like number I remember this this is like a highlight reel type thing because it's just a really good performance by Jim with a very popular song but you're right it is sad there's a melancholy to it and I appreciated that and then, of course, it ends with him going a little too far. And ending up where he started. For The Muppet Show, it's a fairly moving number. Mm-hmm. I think the highlight of the episode. 
I, I would absolutely agree. If I could save time in a bottle. So then we get more chickens. <laughs> it's true. We get what we'll call big chicken, but uh, the chickens are, I, I was so sure they were going to start playing chopsticks, but the chickens sit down to play down at Papa Joe's on the piano. Statler and Waldorf, true to form, decide that they hate until the giant chicken from, I think it was last episode? Or, yeah, or from recently. It's not the chicken suit that like Harvey Corman was wearing. It's like a puppet. Almost. Yeah, it's, it's a full body puppet. It's terrifying. It's the Kool-Aid Man of Chickens, which is a weird thing to say out loud. Oh, that's right. Yeah, it, it was. Yes, it was that sketch with the birds. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this thing is uh, this thing is horrifying. I don't like this big chicken at all. I need Peter Griffin here now to fight this thing for me. So I've got two lists running through my head as we continue with this podcast. One is going to be a list of songs that I wish Electric Mayhem would cover. And I think slowly but surely there is another list of Muppets that I just don't want chasing me down a dark hall. Yeah, this chicken's one of them. Oh, absolutely. Like Thog, I would probably be all right with because I would try to reason with Thog. This chicken, there's no reasoning with this chicken. He's out for blood. I agree. This chicken has to go. Tasty, though. Probably, yeah. There's a lot of meat on that bone. From there, we... I guess you would call this our, our centerpiece sketch with Edgar. Yeah, our, cl our closing number, I guess. Yeah. We haven't seen him and Charlie take the stage yet. Like, not the main stage. Yeah, no, you're right. The opening number was backstage. And then there was a scene in the dressing room. Yeah, Charlie, uh, Edgar has not been on stage yet. I, I think this is what would probably be their, their standard sort of vaudeville act with them playing off of each other and Edgar telling Charlie to be nice and Charlie being Charlie. Charlie, are you enjoying yourself on the Muppet Show? Uh, yes, Durgan, I'm, uh, I'm enjoying myself here. Yeah. Well, that's nice. Yes, I have to enjoy myself. There's nothing else to enjoy on the show. <laughs> What? They're a bunch of weirdos. Oh, no, 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 Charlie. That's not, it's not nice to say that. Yeah. Why, there's some wonderful folks on this show. Yeah, yes. Well, like uh, Fozzie. Yeah. Well, he's a bear. Yes. <laughs> Pure and simple. Charlie. Accent on simple. <laughs> Out of nowhere, Miss Piggy decides that she's going to come on stage because, well, Charlie mentioned being lonely. What's the matter with you, Charlie? Well, if you must know, I'm, uh... I'm lonesome. Oh, you're lonesome? Yeah. Oh, I should have guessed that, sure. You you missed the companionship of a beautiful, gorgeous female. Yeah. Did yeah. someone call me? The thing that I love about this is Piggy in typical Piggy form, and actually, I guess, sort of echoing the pigs in space bit. She's going to go from charm to violence in no time flat, but she is also trying to chop wood. Is this the first? No, it's not the first time. This is twice in this episode where Piggy has karate chops go wrong. She gets the short end of the stick on this one. She gets beat up a little bit. Well, yeah, but to be fair, it's a very mean stick. She's the one swinging it. <laughs> she just, just comes back and hits her. Her and Charlie get to have a little back and forth. He was just saying that he wanted to meet you. Uh-huh. Didn't yeah. sound that way to me. Well, me neither, and I said it. <laughs> For your information, you overdressed splinter. Yeah. My heart belongs to Kermit. You, you're in love with a frog. <laughs> what are you laughing at, mahogany mouth? You know what we used to do with frogs? No, you know what we used to do with wood? No, I don't. Chop it! Yeah. Her hand bangs off of him because he's made of oak. <laughs> For a finale, it was kind of underwhelming. Like some of the some of the jokes were funny when Piggy and Charlie were funny. I was looking at the time and I was like, oh, this is our big number. Just an old man sitting in a chair with a puppet. I think at the time it would have been more appealing because he was more of a known entity. Yeah. This is what people would have known him for. So I think this oh, was a God pleaser just for a much earlier crowd. 
I wonder, was there a way I'm going to I'm going to second guess Jim Henson. That always goes well. Is there a way for them to do this where Charlie like actually interacts with the Muppets where they treat Charlie like a Muppet? I think the case in which that happens, Edgar isn't the guest on the show. Yeah, I don't think. Yeah. Or would it be too disconcerting to see Charlie like from the waist up walking around with the other Muppets? Oh, I would be terrified, but other people would probably be fine with it. And I get they're separate things. And I get that, like, you know, the Edgar Bergen is technically the guest. I just wonder with Mortimer and with Charlie, if they could have done something to kind of integrate them more Mm -hmm. with the actual Muppets or made kind of a connection there. But I don't think you can because Charlie is such an asshole. There's that, but I'm also thinking about it from a logistical standpoint. Charlie's always resting on Edgar's lap. Yeah, that's not how he's built. There's that, but also I'm imagining Edgar, especially at that age, having to keep Charlie up over his head the way that Jim and Frank and everyone else did. Yeah, just make Richard Hunt do it. He was like 22. Just make Richard Hunt do it and he can do the voice later. I want to know how that negotiation works. So we just want Charlie. Don't worry, one of us will operate him. Jim's a huge, huge fan of yours, by the way. (laughs) When I was watching the scene with him and Piggy, I was like, man, could we have had more of that? I will admit, I get it. I understand it. I was distracted by Bergen's lips moving the whole time. It didn't bother me. It just, I found it distracting because that's not what I think of when I think of a ventriloquist, even though I do understand his history. I gave him a little leeway because of his age. but. I found it a little distracting, but I guess the idea is he's not, we're not supposed to believe that Charlie is a character. We're not supposed to believe that Charlie's a living character like the Muppets are. Right. I just wondered if there could have been better integration. Yeah. And then then there's the end where Charlie makes a joke about eating frog legs or about dissecting frogs in class. He's made that joke twice in the episode too. I got the feeling with Bergen, there's like a dozen jokes that he's got. But I came out of this episode more than anything going, man, Jim changed everything. (laughs) Yeah. We, having grown up on the Muppets or having at least known the Muppets our our whole lives, we're used to the Muppets being the Muppets. And so many more recent puppetry is more Muppets inspired. But to see this guy who was one of the inspirations for the Muppets, who helped, who was one of Jim's early influences when it came to puppetry in a way, or at least in creating characters, to see them with Charlie McCarthy, I was like, man, this is night and day. They are not the same thing. Is Charlie actually calling the shots? Is it like a Scarface ventriloquist thing for Batman <laughs> where the true villain is the puppet say Charlie is the actual brains of the operation then the the will thing makes total sense yeah he set it up so that he would get all the money so he could keep living this pimping lifestyle it's still weird man all of it is episode 208 with special guest star Steve Martin July 19th through 21st is when it was shot and uh, premiered eh, in that fall, that winter in New York and the UK. So I'm very lucky this week uh, because I get to do Steve Martin. So here's my bio. He's Steve Martin. End of story. This is the first guest star we've had where I've been like, to me, the bio was just pointing at him, you know, because he's so freaking famous. (laughs) He's been around for so long. Stephen Glenn Martin was born August 14th, 1945 in Waco, Texas, which I didn't know, Waco. So, I mean, maybe we will learn some new stuff. His mother's name was Mary, and his father, Glenn, worked as a real estate agent, but really kind of wanted to be an actor, having caught the bug while serving in the UK in World War II. Glenn was a stern and unaffectionate parent, and him and Steve had a strained relationship that Steve would actually later kind of say was built on hatred. (laughs) A lot of his feelings about his father growing up were hate. So that's interesting. At some point, I couldn't find out when they moved to Inglewood, California, which, as we all know, is Inglewood. Inglewood always up to no good. A doctor told me that one time. Steve went to Garden Grove High School, where he was a cheerleader, and his first job was famously at Disneyland, selling guidebooks. 
During his first year there, he hung around the Main Street Magic Shop a lot, which sits in that first little square once you get past the gates across Main Street from the Souvenir Emporium. And at the Magic Shop, he picked up some tricks and illusions by watching the demonstrations. He eventually got so good at it that they offered him a job at the Magic Shop itself, and he kept perfecting his skills there. He could also juggle and create balloon animals, which we'll see in this episode, although competently. He can do he can create balloon animals competently, no matter what this and the movie Parenthood want us to believe. What's he doing? I don't know. Your lower intestine. Steve never set out to be a magician. Like, I think he just liked performing. He liked the attention. It didn't matter the stage. He just needed to be on one. One day, that would mean playing the banjo at Carnegie Hall. But for now, it was making coins disappear behind ears and asking tourists, are you sure this wasn't your card? He went to Santa Ana College and studied drama and poetry, joined a comedy troupe and started performing publicly. He transferred to Cal State Long Beach, where he was a philosophy major. Uh, And he says philosophy really changed the way he looked at the world and comedy. And I'll give you a little quote. What if there were no punchlines? What if there were no indicators? What if I created tension and never released it? What would the audience do with that tension? Theoretically, it would have to come out sometime. But I keep denying them the formality of the punchline. And the audience would eventually pick their own place to laugh, essentially out of desperation. Now, I've heard people on Coke talk like that, but I think in this case, Steve was just a kid trying to figure out how to do things differently. But you speed that up a little bit, it sounds like a Hollywood Coke party. Cocaine is a hell of a drug. In 67, he transferred to UCLA uh, to major in theater, but was also doing stand-up in nightclubs and was doing well and decided to, and decided to double down on that. So he, he dropped out of college at 21. That year, through an ex-girlfriend, he got a job writing for the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour, for which he won an Emmy at age 23, but... That was with like a dozen other writers. They were all more senior than him on the show. It was like the show won a writing award and he just was one of the writers. He wrote for the Glenn Campbell show, the Sonny and Cher. Then he started doing stand-up appearances on television, on like the Tonight Show, the Gong Show. Then he did Saturday Night Live, which he would eventually guest host 15 times as of today, which is second only to Alec Baldwin. And in 77, he did The Muppet Show. Now, here's what's important to remember about this episode of The Muppet Show. This is at the very beginning of the Steve Martin craze, like ground zero, because 77, when he recorded this, is the year his first comedy album, Let's Get Small, came out. By the time this episode aired, Let's Get Small had reached number 14 on the Billboard charts, which is the highest it ever peaked. So Steve Martin fever evolved over the course of 1977. He was not a gigantic star when they shot this episode, but he kind of was by the time it came out. He was known, but he wasn't huge. He like said in 77, he released Let's Get Small. It doesn't bother me in a nightclub because I'm used to it. If I'm in a restaurant though, I'm, and I'm eating and someone says, Hey, mind if I smoke? Or I say, Oh no, do you mind if I fart? <laughs> it's one of my habits. <laughs> yeah, they got a special section for me on airplanes now. I quit once for a year, you know. <laughs> but I gained a lot of weight. It's hard to quit. Um, you know, after sex, I really have the urge to light one up, huh? <laughs> And then in 78, his follow-up, A Wild and Crazy Guy. Both albums went platinum. 
Both albums won Grammys, and both albums gave birth to catchphrases that helped define 70s comedy. Excuse me! Because I am a wild and crazy guy! The second album also featured his song King Tut, which was released as a single, charted, topping out at number 17, and sold a million copies. And he famously, of course, performed that on Saturday Night Live as well in the spring of 78. Now when he was a young man, he never thought he'd see people stand in line to see the boy King. King Tut. How'd you get so funky? Martin toured incessantly on those first two records. And during this time, he basically became a rock star in a way that I'm not sure many comics had before. I mean, this was before Eddie Murphy, obviously, but I guess prior would have been around this time. But while Richard was playing theaters and clubs, Steve was packing amphitheaters and stadiums. His trademark white suit, which he would wear uh, during the shows, which went along real well with his fairly prematurely graying hair, came about because he was concerned that people near the back of the enormous venues he was playing wouldn't be able to see him. So he wanted to wear something bright. Oh, and he was also famous for putting an arrow through his head. I don't know if he knew that. And then in 1981, Steve quit stand-up at the top of his game. He just quit cold turkey and never really looked back. He was the biggest comedian in the world and a legend in the making, but he wanted to make movies. I think I've read his memoir, Born Standing Up, and he talks a little bit about how he felt that his brand of comedy wasn't going to age well or that he understood that his wackiness and whatever was kind of a novelty and that novelties wear thin. And so that he was concerned with transitioning his career to the next thing. But he never really there's a little bit in like 2016 where he did a little bit of stand up, but he's not he never really went back to stand up again. He's one of the most successful stand up comics of all time who just walked away. So from here on, uh, Steve has three different aspects of his professional life. I'm not going to go into them in as much detail, but I'm just going to list some titles. So there's movies. His first starring role was in Carl Reiner's The Jerk in 1979, which he also co-wrote. It was never easy for me. I was born a poor black child. I remember the days sitting on the porch with my family singing and dancing down in Mississippi. It grossed 100 million on a budget of four. So even in Hollywood, you would call that a success. After The Jerk, in chronological order, uh, he has a cameo in the Muppet movie. Actually, it's not even a cameo. It's a fairly significant role, a very funny role in the Muppet movie. Don't you want to smell the bottle cap? Pennies from Heaven, Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, The Man with Two Brains, All of Me, which is a great flick, Three Amigos. Ah, uh, this is real. You mean... They are going to kill us. What am I doing in Mexico? I've been shot already. I know. What are we going to do? We're not going to get paid, that's for sure. Frank Oz's big screen adaptation of Little Shop of Horrors, the um, best John Hughes movie, in my opinion, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Where's your other hand? Between two pillows. Those aren't pillows. Roxanne, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, also directed by Frank Oz, L.A. Story, Parenthood, Grand Canyon, Mixed Nuts, The Spanish Prisoner, Bowfinger, great movie, Looney Tunes, Back in Action, which is a crap flick, but look for my name in the credits. 
<laughs> the remake of Cheaper by the Dozen, and then the misguided kind of Pink Panther remakes there, which are pretty awful. Martin is also cre- accredited writer on many of these films. Oh, My Blue Heaven. Sorry, I forgot My Blue Heaven. Shit, how could I forget My Blue Heaven? Anyway, he wrote several of his films, including 2005 Shop Girl with Claire Danes, which was based on Martin's own novella, because the second part is Steve the writer. Martin's first full-length play, Picasso at the Lapin Agile, ran at the Steppenwolf Theater in Chicago in 93 and 94, and it toured the country. He's written pieces for The New Yorker, a couple of novellas like the previously mentioned Shop Girl, and a novel in 2010 called An Object of Beauty, which I read and remember liking quite a bit. In 2007, he released Born Standing Up, his memoir, focusing mainly on his youth and his time as a stand-up comedian, and it's fantastic. And if you're interested, I suggest the audiobook, where Martin himself does the reading, and that makes him kind of reprise some of his classic bits for the sake of the book, things that he hasn't done in forever. Then there's Steve the Musician. He started playing banjo at 17, and it was a big part of his stand-up act, and as we'll see tonight, you know, he brought that onto The Muppet Show as well. But after he stopped doing stand-up comedy, he kept playing the banjo. In fact, his final comedy album was Jokes on one side and Bluegrass on the other. He didn't release his first all-music album, though, until 2009, called uh, The Crow, New Songs for the Five-String Banjo. Grammy for Best Bluegrass Album. He's played the Grand Old Opry, Carnegie Hall, Bonnaroo, and the New Orleans Jazz Fest. He's appeared as a musician on a billion talk shows. and Oh, and he also hosted the Academy Awards in 2001 and 2003, and then split the duties in 2010 with Alec Baldwin. There's Alec Baldwin again. He's been married twice and has a daughter. He's currently 75. Fun fact, you'll like this. Stanley Kubrick once approached Steve Martin to star in a screwball comedy adapted from the German novella Tram Novel, which translates to like dream story, but it didn't quite work out. Eventually, Kubrick changed his approach to the movie and turned it into Eyes Wide Shut. If you men only knew. And as a Kubrick fan and a Martin fan, I would give no less than a million dollars to see that movie. Martin's early comedy was a frantic mix of kind of highbrow irony and uh, abject silliness, kind of like the man himself, with its non sequiturs and its use of music and kind of this little comedic deconstruction while still being very funny. It made him an influence on an entire generation of writers and comedians and actors. Those first few albums actually were big moments in nerd culture because his smart and offbeat humor really appealed to people who were themselves smart but offbeat now if you're a hardcore steve martin fan i'm sure i left something out but this has to end eventually and i do have a quick personal anecdote i'm not going to have many of these but i do have a quick personal anecdote about steve martin's the first one when i moved to la in 1999 i worked at a photo lab developing pictures like a troglodyte like chemicals and big machines and stuff if people remember that (laughs) i know it wasn't that long ago but it feels like it i worked at a store in beverly hills right on beverly drive where all the shopping is our first celebrity customer was carl reiner director of the jerk i do remember that the most important thing for me at the time was that the company which was wolf camera i don't even know if they exist anymore probably not but wolf camera was renting me a parking spot in a lot on beverly drive that is primo parking real estate that's where people park to go shopping on rodeo a block over i can't imagine how much it cost anyway i had this parking pass and one day i pulled in i used to abuse it all the time too (laughs) 
I had a permanent parking spot in Beverly Hills. So if there's anything near Beverly Hills, I'm like, I'm driving. I got a spot. I was pulling into work one day and I was about to get out of the car to give my keys to the valet when this little cherry red convertible came whipping into the lot. Now, I didn't see how close it came to my bumper, but the attendant did because he jumped a little, but all was cool. The driver stopped in time. I looked in my rearview mirror and I saw a man with silver hair. And I thought, is that? And then then he put on a pair of sunglasses and a ball cap as his like regular person disguise. And I instantly went, oh, it's Steve Martin. I've seen him so many times in his incognito getup that I didn't actually truly recognize him until he was in disguise, which means it's probably a bad disguise. We didn't like talk or anything. He gave me a little bit of a nod as the attendant took his keys before mine, by the way, because, you know, Hollywood priorities. <laughs> and uh, that was it. It's the only time I ever came close to him. I did work on Joe Dante's Looney Tunes movie that Steve is in, but uh, I wasn't there for anytime Steve was shooting. See, Martin's a huge influence, like I said, on a whole generation of people. This is, to me, an interesting moment in his career. Like I said, he's on the runway. He's not just on the runway. He's taking off. He is in that like 30 seconds or whatever from when you start moving to when you feel yourself lifting off into the air on a plane back when we could go on planes. He's just about there. Let's Get Small was out, but it wasn't going to hit its peak until later in the year. He didn't have any movies yet. All he had was his stand up. This was the, the beginning of Steve Martin. So why did you hate him? <laughs> Hate's a strong word. We'll get to it. I, I probably agree with you on a lot of it. <laughs> this episode's, of course, written by uh, Joel Bailey Henson and Hinckley. Peter Harris is back this week, though, directing this episode. We have some new faces to talk about, though. Um, we have the All Food Glee Club, which is a gang of anthropomorphic produce that serve as a chorus for Marvin Suggs in this episode. Um, they're going to show up in many productions in the future, including The Great Muppet Caper, Christmas Carol, Treasure Island, but kind of just a generic catchphrase for the singing food that they use sometimes. There's also the Flying Zucchini Brothers, which is an Italian group of what do you call them? Stuntmen, human cannibals. I'm just going to call them projectiles or sometimes projectiles. Yeah, human Italian projectiles. Biondo, Giuseppe, Luigi, Lorenzo, and Heathcliff are their names. Um, there's going to be various, but they're going to show up a bunch. And then there's Lubbock Lou and his jug band, which is the new jug band that's replacing the Gugalala Jubilee jug band. And those characters are Lou, Gramps, Zeke, a couple of others. So that's a, we're going to see this jug band a lot. This is going to be the kind of default jug band. I also need to point out this episode had a content warning on Disney+. Plus. This episode had a cultural content warning on Disney+. Plus. And as we go through it, I want to see if we can figure out what for. Mm -hmm. I have a couple of guesses, actually, which is maybe not a great thing. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, welcome for the moment to The Muppet Show. Uh, listen, I really feel bad about this, but I have a special announcement. Hey, maybe we've gotten lucky at last. Yeah, maybe tonight's show's been canceled. <laughs> uh, tonight's show has been canceled. <laughs> have I died and gone to heaven? Uh, well, you see, I just realized I misread my calendar. Uh, tonight, we're scheduled to audition new acts for the show, so I'm really sorry, but there will not be a Muppet show tonight. So this is a concept episode. Yeah, I would say that. We're seeing more of that this season because it takes me back immediately two episodes back to Kermit being out sick and Fozzie having to run the show. But this one takes it a lot farther by just completely destroying the frame. Yeah, so the only time we're backstage the whole episode is the cold open, where Scooter comes in to check on Steve. Steve Martin, old Steve Martin. 15 seconds till curtain, Mr. Martin. Thank you, Scooter, I'm almost ready. <laughs> See, you're gonna feel right at home around here. 
the first shot we see of Steve Martin, he's got the fake arrow through his head, his signature at the time. What you're going to under what you're going to see as we watch this episode is Steve Martin has been brought on to here to do his stand up. Everything he does in this is from his stand up albums, pretty much. I think one of the reasons why maybe he doesn't come across as effective of, of a guest star is because he's a solitaire player. At this point in his career, he's a stand-up comic. He's a solo act. He wasn't an actor yet. If we'd been in the audience at the time that this came out, this probably would have landed much better. And I know that I've said that on other episodes, but it, it's for a different reason in this space because part of what takes me out of it is a lot of the way that he enunciates, he doesn't necessarily aim toward a punchline, but... No. This association of increased volume with comedy, which is something I got tired of when I was in college and like looking at different improv players who would just be like, I'm going to raise my voice so you know to laugh now. Understand that none of this is improv. This is all meticulous, calculated. Every Everything he says is calculated. Everything he says is, is something that he... It's comedy so hard, man. Because like what gets laughs in 1977 is way different than what gives laughs now. There are there are things that cross over. Men getting hit in the balls will always be funny. It's true. And I think one of the things that I've heard, especially about stand-up comedy, is that there are two or three schools of stand-up comedy. You've got like the prior school, which is more storytelling based. You've got the Carlin school, which is more like minute for minute joke based. And then you've got, the, what was the third one? It's an absurdist one, but I can't. Like Mitch? Yeah, Chad Brooks. Yeah. Slash Stephen Wright. I'm a fan of those first two Steve Martin albums. I really am. But they don't they don't make me laugh anymore. <laughs> like it, it's kind of like how Robin Williams comedy also kind of turned into almost a self parody. I think that's what Martin was trying to avoid avoid when he stopped doing stand up. He didn't want to grow tiresome with Martin. There is an interesting thing because I can see the comedic sensibility that would lead to something like Bowfinger and Bowfinger is one of my all time favorite movies. Just bar none. Like it's easily top 20, if not top 10 favorite movies. We'll talk about Steve's Steve's uh, comedy as we go on, because like I said, pretty much everything he does in here is just a clip off of his record. It's, it's almost like he's a musician who put out a new CD. God, I'm old. Who's put out a new eight track and is coming on here to play three songs from it. At the end of the Muppet Show theme, Gonzo blows his trumpet and green smoke comes out. Happy 420. That was a few days ago. Here's the concept of this episode. There's technically no backstage story because we don't go backstage, but the whole thing is a backstage story. Kermit comes out and tells the audience much to their, I would say, apathy <laughs> that there's no show tonight that he messed up he read his calendar wrong and that tonight they're doing auditions for new acts and um steve comes out and he's yeah it is kermit uh, how's it going little fella uh, uh well i'm uh, fine just fine steve <clears throat> say i was uh sitting back in my dressing room back there getting ready for the next number and uh heard this rumor that the uh, show had been canceled uh, well yeah you see we have to audition new acts tonight Oh, oh, okay, fine. Hey, you know, I was just supposed to be the guest star on tonight's show. No problem. Well, yeah, I, I, I'm very sorry about that, really. Well, you know, it's just it's just a thing that uh, I'm sitting back there getting ready, uh, and, 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 you know, I feel like some kind of sap back there putting these clothes on for the big number, and uh, no one comes back and bothers to say, Hey, Steve, the show has been canceled. What am I around here? Nothing! <laughs> uh, Steve, I, I don't know what to say. Well, I do! The structure of the episode is going to be auditions. In fact, we're going to get pound for pound, I think, more sketches than we normally get in a Muppet Show episode. A number of them are abbreviated, but yeah. This actually reminds me a little bit of Emmett Otter. So Steve comes out and he's kind of disappointed and he gives a good, uh, he gives Kermit a good... Excuse me! <laughs> Excuse me is a track on Let's Get Small. And it basically instantly became a national catchphrase. 
So here's the thing about that particular phrase, because my exposure to it is still something that's older than I am, but it's not Steve <laughs> right. Martin. It's entirely the Legend of Zelda cartoon, because in every other iteration of Zelda, Link yeah. is completely silent. Like, he's a mute hero, or he has that weird, <laughs> yeah, like, grunt. That's right. Excuse me, princess. <laughs> but he would also draw it out like Steve Martin did, and I, it never occurred to me that that <laughs> came from somewhere else. I just figured that that was some writer in the room was just, like, thinking that he was clever or something like that. Hey, excuse me, princess. Sometimes catchphrases like that just become part of the vernacular, mm-hmm. just become part of the language. So he gives that. That's one of his catchphrases. That's where, like, you can tell that he was already famous, that the album was out, the album was doing well, it had made a little bit of a splash, but things were still building in his career. He wasn't quite there yet, but he was there enough that he brought on his catchphrase. One thing to notice in this episode, because the crowd leaves and throughout it, basically the Muppets are Muppet characters, Floyd and Gonzo and Fosny already. They're the ones sitting in the seats, which is a weird visual. And it's like a small spoiler, but I don't I don't remember exactly where it cuts in. But we see the Muppet newsman and he's there on a date like he's got someone who's sort of like (laughs) cuddling with him a little bit. Yeah, he sits in the audience with a woman that looks like Wanda. A little bit. Yeah, I think it might be the Wanda puppet. But the other important thing to notice is that there's no laugh track in this episode because Jim's diegetic reasoning, the way he talked himself into using the laugh track because it was the show was funnier with it, but he still had to try to justify it somehow to himself because he hated it was that there's a live audience there. While that doesn't quite track because the laugh track also happens when they're backstage. Still, that's the concept. So since there's no audience for this episode, they get rid of the laugh track. It's another piece of the high concept nature of the episode. Now, there is laughing, but all the laughter is from like the puppeteers and crew members and stuff. So it only sounds like a few people to simulate the fact that there's just a handful of Muppets sitting in the theater or that the actual like crew is laughing. But there is no laugh track. And I actually think it's very effective. This episode does feel like it takes place in an empty theater. The atmosphere and it feels about right. It's a very different feeling episode. Is that fair? That's yeah, no, that's absolutely there they tonally it's completely different but i think they do a very good job of selling that uh kermit kermit mm, hey uh when you say uh, you are auditioning act uh you mean new act don't you i mean you don't mean replacements fozzy wants kermit to assure him that they are auditioning new acts and not replacements and kermit is non-committal on that <laughs> oh well i i don't really know fozzy i just thought maybe we could use some new blood Why didn't he tell me he wanted me to bleed? (laughs) You know, let's just see how this goes. (laughs) And they bring out the first act. The Latrec sisters, who are a group of dancing rats, and they come out doing the can-can. The, you know, famous French dance number. This is like straight out of Emmett Otter. It uses a black box theater method Mm -hmm. to make the dancing rats, and it reminded me of the squirrels in Emmett Otter. Yeah. It's more of like things they learned on Emmett Otter that they're porting over to The Muppet Show. Advancements that they made or new things. Like, I mean, I know they've done black box before, but this is so much like that squirrels thing in Emmett Otter. Our next act, uh, we're going to go through these fast because there's a lot of them. Our next act is a little girl named Mary Louise. Who we've seen before. And she's coming to audition. It's her and her friend, and she's got a frog. Some kind of weird, dark, turquoise kind of frog. Maybe that was a toad. So the idea is we're going to see her three times, but she comes out and she's all of her songs are going to be kind of puns, puns, weird owl versions of songs, mm-hmm. but with a frog. The first one, she comes in and sings Swanee River. Way down upon the Swanee River, far, far away. Which is a, an old Stephen Foster song. He is known as the uh, father of American music. He wrote songs like Oh Susanna, 
Camptown Races, My Old Kentucky Home. He also is kind of a problematic figure because many of his songs were used at minstrel shows, and some of his songs have been interpreted as being kind of racist uh, to African Americans. But others think his like he depicted slavery and other kind of antebellum life in his songs, and some people think it helped highlight the realities of the time, and other people think it was exploiting it. So you, know, you be the judge. The idea is she's singing Swanee River, but when she starts to sing it, and then when it gets to the word river, the frog just goes. So it's Swanee Ribbit. And then uh, she gets the hook. So she gets yanked off stage by we don't see who's it's important to remember. We don't see who's holding the hook. That actually matters. Yeah. We go into the crowd for a minute. And again, it's weird because this would be the backstage stuff, but it's not. It's sitting out in the in the Muppet Theater. And the chef and Floyd are just having a little discussion about how bummed they are that there's no episode tonight, you know, because. Hey, well, I had a big vibe solo schedule on tonight's show. Don't ask me why the frog canceled. And then the chef makes it act like he's going to, like, cut Kermit in pieces. <laughs> he makes some kind of violent overtures. <laughs> yeah, right on. Now you're talking my language. <laughs> yeah, but I, I think that's just how the, the Swedish chef communicates. Yeah, but Floyd's into it. Floyd's like, oh, we're going to take out the frog? All right. <laughs> Because they're expressing their kind of frustration with Kermit, and he's like, chubby, chubby. And you're like, wait, hold on. To be fair, if everyone shows up for work and is told that we're not working tonight because I forgot and double booked you guys, I'd be kind of irritated too. My first question is, do I still get paid? Yeah. But we know the answer to that because this is The Muppet Show. I mean, technically, they're getting paid as much as they would have been paid if they had had it. A- What's he going to complain about? He doesn't have to work. He does. He's not getting paid anyway. He's not losing out on anything. He can't be chronically groovy if he can't ride the groove. He is chronically groovy. That's true. So then we get... I'd say the one. Okay, so we get the one Steve Martin bit that's not technically from the record, but is definitely from his stand-up, which is his balloon animals. Hey, uh, Steve, Steve, uh, you know, you really don't have to perform here, you know? Well, I figured since I was here, I may as well uh, do some stuff, you know? Yeah, but uh, you don't have to do this because we canceled the show. Oh, well, uh, maybe I could just, you know, perform for the guys. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Listen, if you, if you want him, you got him. Uh, take it away, Steve. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Now, I realize a lot of you folks are sitting out there saying to yourselves, sure, he's great, but can he make balloon animals? Steve would do this on stage. He would do this in the movie Parenthood many, many years later. He was a man who really knew how to make balloon animals, but I don't think I've ever seen him on stage actually make them. The gag was always that he's terrible at it, right? The comedy bit was that he was going to make balloon animals, but he'd hold something up and go, look, it's a pony, and it doesn't look anything like a pony. Okay, so this is the first kind of real true Steve Martin thing. Now, where was your, I'm not going to say problem. I'm not, I don't, I'm not trying to get you to pick on him, but like, what didn't sit well with you? It's, is it just the style of humor just isn't your thing? I think that might be it. I don't want to throw any disrespect Steve Martin's way. Something about the the nature of the comedy, it almost feels like there's a presumption that you're already going to laugh and you're already in on the joke. I would say more than anything, he was an absurdist. I could see that. Yeah. He's just trying to show you something you haven't seen before. He's just trying to get you to see something unexpected. And he also has part of that smart, dumb comedy. I liked him in this episode, but I liked him because I like Steve Martin and I like these bits. You know, they're doing the auditions, so it fits in organically. But I mean, like, there's nothing that just catered to The Muppet Show. Right. I'll tell you what, I'll make a compromise. I'll make balloon animals, but I won't blow them up. 
Oh, look at that. Look at that. Giraffe. Oh, here we go. Okay. See, I always fill up the balloons with words, and if they pop, they go, gosh darn it. <laughs> so before we met Mary Louise, and she got she got the hook. And so now we have Terry Louise, who looks a lot like Mary Louise. Sounds a lot like her, too. And also has a frog for a friend. Now, this time, they're going to sing the song Tie a Yellow Ribbon. a big hit for Tony Orlando and Dawn in the 70s. Kind of an interesting song. It's about a, a man who's done his time in prison, but is unsure whether or not he'll be welcomed home by his wife. And so in the letter he's writing, basically, he's saying, tie a yellow ribbon around that old oak tree if I'm welcome. So that when I get out of prison, I'll come by. If there's a yellow ribbon out there. I'll know that I'm welcome home. If not, no hard feelings. I get it. I'll just keep moving on. And then when he does come home, there's like a hundred ribbons around the tree. It's actually kind of a sweet little story in there. Mm -hmm. But in this case, it's... Tie a yellow ribbon. <laughs> and she gets the hook again. <laughs> Apparently the Muppets like their puns, but this is too far for them. Or is there something else to it? There might be uh, something a bit darker underneath. There may be something a little showgirls afoot. Or so then we, we get a really funny sequence of events. So the next act is a stand-up comedian. Our good buddy Baskerville the Hound. He's been in other stuff. He's shown up throughout this show. But uh, here's Baskerville the Hound. And he comes out and he sounds a lot like Fozzie Bear. <laughs> his act is pretty much, he's got the tie, he's got the hat. And he comes out and does his, his act. Hey, hey. It's comedy time! You know what they call a dirty dog? A mud poodle! Ah, I am so funny! Uh, uh, did you hear the <laughs> Next! And who gives him the hook? I think it was Fozzie, wasn't it? Oh yeah, Fozzie gets up there immediately. <laughs> and he keeps the hook by him when he sits down, too. Baskerville gets one joke out, and Fozzie's immediately like, Next! And yanks him off the stage. But what's great is then he, he, yeah, he takes the hook, he sits back down, and then he's with Kermit Scooter. And Come on, Fozzie, you're taking all this too personally. Oh. Listen, it's very healthy to see what other people in your field are doing. It's an enriching experience. Yeah. And then the next guy is a guy named Lenny the Lizard, who we have seen him before, but Lenny the Lizard, who comes out to audition for the MC of the show, and he basically sounds like Kermit. <laughs> what the hey? Thank you, thank you, thank you, and welcome again to another edition of The Muppet Show. Well, we've got a great show for you tonight, starring the incredible and amazingly talented me, plus other good things. Next! And Kermit's like, next. <laughs> Kermit immediately, it's a great hypocrite turn. I love a good hypocrite turn. The timing on it was like exactly what it needed to be for us to see that flip. And Fozzie even ribs him a little bit. It was really interesting to see how another MC works. <laughs> yeah, you really must feel enriched, Kermit. Will you get out of here, Fozzie? <laughs> Fozzie has become a lot more self-aware. Mm -hmm. And so I love the fact that Fozzie was aware enough in that moment to turn that back on Kermit. That we're introduced is to a bunch of Fazoobs from Coosbane. Here they are, the four Fazoobs. <laughs> what? What? 
just take a second and reflect on the fact that we're getting a lot of world building for Kuzbane this season. Yeah, Kuzbane's becoming a little more prominent. They've got different races on Kuzbane. Um, and these are the Fazoobs. And they perform, uh, although they appear to all be different monsters. So maybe Fazoobs is a nationality? Maybe they're a gang? Maybe they're like jets, sharks, and Fazoobs? But they perform a uh, musical number that's um, very hard to describe. So I will just put music from it here. They're all like playing each other as instruments, kinda. It's just four weird monster puppets making music. One of them's got a horn for a nose. And... But they don't, like, that one sings, does something while another one blows on some sort of like string extending from that one's back to get stuff to go out of the horn. Yeah, I wasn't going to bring up the human centipede. Yeah. But <laughs> there's a little bit of a human centipede thing going on where they're kind of using each other's bodies as instruments a little bit. It seems significantly more consensual. Don't go watch the human centipede and like think that's what it is because it's... No. It's it's not that. I don't even want to imagine like an actual Muppet human centipede. It just makes me sad. But I, no, I'm not going to ask which one, which part you'd rather be. This is a family show. We get a two-part UK spot, which is interesting. Now, this is my first tag for perhaps why we got a warning label. The UK spot, Gonzo comes out and he's trying to tell Kermit about his new act with his dancing cheese. He's gonna, he's, he wants to, and he wants to audition, which is like, you've already got a job, dude. All Gonzo is going to do by auditioning is make Kermit not want to hire him back. Like, like it's going to remind Kermit. So I don't know why he'd want to put himself out there. Chad, we, we need to re-examine Gonzo's artistic temperament as well as his general situational awareness. I'm just saying he should lie low. The more he brings attention to his act, the more Kermit will realize that it's utter nonsense. But Gonzo is an artist. He's got a new act and it's got dancing cheese. He mentions the fact that the dancing cheese is a her and Kermit's like, your cheese is a girl. Of course it's a female. You don't expect me to dance with a male, do you? Uh, uh, no, no. That would look weird. Uh, yes, yes. I'm sure that would look weird, Gonzo. Okay. Uh. We're going to call that a strike. It's not a weird joke to make in 1977, but it's not a very chill joke. It'd be one thing if it had something to do with chickens. Oh, it's it's a, you know, it's a chicken. Yeah, I wouldn't dance with a man. Like, that would make sense. But this is a very clear, like, kind of gay panic joke, kind of. Mm -hmm. So not cool. So I don't know why that, if that's the warning from disney or not but the next one might be as well because then he gets a chance to do his bit with the the dancing cheese and he comes out and he introduces gonzalez which is gonzo and yolanda which is his dancing cheese and they come out and they sing to like castanets and stuff right mm -hmm. so is this the part that could be racially insensitive culturally insensitive do you think Arriba! It feels more absurd than like it's there were a couple of bits in the first season where like, no, this is painting an entire culture with a broad brush. This is this just feels like Gonzo being weird. Yeah, I was just wondering maybe his like Hispanic accent or his, his, his accent was maybe a little offensive to people. Maybe kind of interesting for a UK spot, though, to have two scenes. I tend not to realize what the UK spot is, especially in the second season before we get to that point, because what I'll think would normally be the UK spot is not, in fact, the UK spot. Rolf at the piano singing a song that has nothing to do with anything in the episode is usually our indicator, right? Mm -hmm. From a tempo standpoint, you, it would feel like a break or a breath of, of air. So now we've got Carrie Louise, not Mary Louise and not Terry Louise, but Carrie Louise, who looks a lot like Mary Louise and Terry Louise with her frog that looks a lot like the other frog. And this time they're going to sing Old Man River. Mm -hmm. 
from the classic Kammerstein musical Showboat. Very famous song. Old man. Ribbit. (laughs) I keep telling you I'm the girl singer on this show. Move it, move it. So then after we find out that it's been Piggy that's been sabotaging Mary, Terry, Carrie Louise, then Steve comes out and performs Ramblin' Guy off of his album, Let's Get Small. It's one of his more famous kind of pieces. And uh, I've never found it funny. Hey, this guy's good. I'm a rambling guy. Well, I'm rambling, rambling round. I'm a rambling guy. I think it plays better probably with a big crowd and stuff. This is supposed to not make sense. It's absurdist. I've never found anything to hold on to with a uh, rambling guy. This is just him coming on and doing it, his latest single. Oh, yes, oh, yes. Oh, no. <laughs> Everybody whistle. <laughs> All right, in Chinese now. Well, I'm ramming, 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 ramming. Then we get with probably maybe the craziest number because Sam comes out and Sam is very outraged because of Steve Martin's weird and all this weird stuff. And he wants some kind of old fashioned entertainment. And uh, Scooter says he can't vouch for the old part. And he introduces our good old friends. Emphasis on the word old Mr. Statler and Mr. Waldorf. (laughs) They come out dressed up like they're selling me ice cream in the 1950s. And they sing the varsity drag. On the toes, that's the way to do the varsity drag. Hotter than hot, newer than new, greener than mean, bluer than blue, gets as much applause as waving the flag. Take it! Which is uh, an old, like, 1927 song from a musical. It's usually done with, like, a Charleston dance. This is crazy. This is Statler and Waldorf, but it uses the Black Fox Bunraku style for the puppets, right? So we can see them full-bodied. Were you disturbed by seeing Statler and Waldorf full-bodied? Yes, but I feel like we've seen them like that before, so it wasn't as much of an adjustment. Not like this. Yeah. This is this reminded me of, and I don't, I don't, I know you haven't seen it, but this right here is very reminiscent. What's reminiscent in retrospect? Very prescient. There's a scene in The Muppet Christmas Carol with the two of them that looks a lot like this. Them full-bodied dancing. But uh, yeah, it's done with black box and they do the varsity drag. And the best part about it is that Fozzie is in the box yelling at them, telling them they suck. That's so great. (laughs) They're terrible, aren't they? Old fool. <laughs> all bets are off right like they're not on 
so they can goof off more. As soon as they get on stage, you know, Fozzie just took off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he was like, I got to get to that balcony. And they, they do a pretty good job of it. Yeah. Sam's impressed. He's, he's very impressed. He wants more of this, but that doesn't turn out because the next act is Marvin Suggs. Because <laughs> if you want class, you go to Marvin Suggs. Now, Marvin has apparently ditched the Muppaphone, or at least for now. And instead, he is performing with his, like I said earlier, the All Food Glee Club. They sing, Yes, We Have No Bananas, which is a novelty song from like 1922. Back during the Sam and Friends days, Kermit and Chicken Liver lip sync to this on the Today Show in the early 60s. And yeah, it's just a bunch of food singing, Yes, We Have No Bananas. Any thoughts? Not, not especially. And now, presenting my singing food. <laughs> yes, we have no bananas. We have no bananas today. Bananas today. Since Steve comes out to do his uh, to do a juggling act, and he juggles three oranges. He said he was a juggler. Learned all this working at Disneyland. I think he, I mean, I think when he started at Disneyland, I don't even think he was getting paid or he was like just getting paid tips. So he started when he was real young. He ends up dropping one and accidentally stepping on it. Well, he doesn't drop. He drops it. And then Fozzie It's really funny. He has Fozzie throw it back to him. It's about as limp wristed of a throw as you would expect from Fozzie. Being a bear that probably didn't play any sports in high school. He absolutely didn't play any sports in high school. I can at least throw a baseball. So he, he doesn't get it. And Steve steps on it and then pretends like it's dead. Oh, no. I've killed it. (laughs) (laughs) And then um, the Swedish chef comes out and brings a juicer. So here's the third one that I think might have gotten us our content warning, and that's the Flying Zucchini Brothers. They are an Italian cannibal act, human cannibal act. The idea is they get the whole thing ready and they're yelling. They remind me of the Bouncing Borsellino Brothers, the gymnasts, the pig gymnasts. It follows a lot of the same beats. And then at the end, they finally get the cannon ready and the curtains close. And then it goes off. Well, that's it. It's all over. What a night. Hmm. So I wonder if the depiction of Italians. Possibility. They are very cliched Italians. Like I said, their names are very cliched. There's no Mario or Wario, but not that far off from Nintendo characters. It, it, it's funny. And we're actually they're going to come back and they're going to be even funnier. But yeah, I wonder if it was the Italian. I guess maybe on the next episode with them, we'll see if there's a content warning. If not, I'm going to guess it could have just been the, the gay panic joke. Mm-hmm. Then we get our musical finale where which is OK. This is a weird one. I mean, it, it's cool. I actually think it's really nice. But Steve comes out and plays dueling banjos. Oh, no, I'm just a little disappointed I didn't get to do the number I'd rehearsed with your jug band. Oh, I didn't know you'd rehearsed a number. Oh, it was going to be good, but no problem, no worries. Yeah, well, I, I would have liked to have seen it. I knew he'd fall for it. Come on in, guys! Now, people know dueling banjos. Problem is, most people know dueling banjos from the movie Deliverance. Arthur Smith in 1955. It's a bluegrass tune. It appeared on an episode, on a 1963 episode of the Andy Griffith Show, 
but it's most famous for its unauthorized use, by the way, in John Borman's 1972 Deliverance, where it takes on a much more sinister tone. And I think that's forever tainted the song. Like, it's because it's become a shorthand for like hillbillies in the swamp that want to do terrible things to you. When you hear dueling banjos in like a comedy, it always means that like rednecks are on the horizon or not even rednecks, like swamp hillbillies, you know? <laughs> Not like some rednecks with a Confederate flag on their car, but like swamp hillbillies that may eat you, you know, type of thing. Mm-hmm. So it would have been after Deliverance, but it's probably the most famous piece of banjo music in the world. Side of the Rainbow Connection, yeah. This is a year before the Rainbow Connection. But yeah, but I thought this was fun. Like, it's the best. I mean, it's just him playing a song, right? But doing his Steve Martin faces, I guess. <laughs> And then, of course, I think it ends with an explosion because the cannon finally goes off. Right? Mm-hmm. We get another tracking shot, sort of like we did with uh, Fidel Castro, Crazy Harry. A couple episodes back, he... Uh, yeah, during the one with the soldiers. Yeah, it's it's the same basic shot of seeing an elongated Muppet firing into the side of the box where Statler and Waldorf usually sit. Well, you know, this is the time when I usually say the show is over, but it seems kind of silly since the show never actually begun. But if it had begun, I'd be saying, let's have a special thanks for Mr. Steve Martin. Yeah. Yeah. I can't tell you what a pleasure it's been for me not being on your show tonight. (laughs) And if there's anybody left watching, we'll see you next time on The Muppet Show! I like this episode. I also just like that it's such a format buster. Absolutely just blows the format up. I'm glad they did it. It just... No, if it doesn't work for you, it doesn't work. I absolutely get that. Next time, Gonzo fiddles while George burns. On our next episode, we are going to be discussing... Are you ready for it, Nick? 209 and 210. Now, 210 is with George Burns. So I'll be covering George Burns. But episode 209 is with a woman named Madeline Kahn. It's true. It's true. It's next week. And that's super exciting. I know we're both huge fans of Madeline Kahn. Oh, yeah. I can't wait to hear more about her. I'm looking forward to, to doing the research. I also have a guilty admission that maybe I should say for next time. Will it get us in legal trouble? No, no, I just, I've never actually seen Young Frankenstein. It's a weird oversight. Stop the podcast. Hold on. What the? I like Mel Brooks. I like Gene Wilder. I like Madeline Kahn. I haven't been avoiding seeing it. It's maybe his best movie, man. I never got around to seeing it. I know people say this all the time, and I try not to give you crap for it. I only give you crap for it when it's it's funny. You need to watch Young Frankenstein, man. (laughs) It's not a question of if, but when. I will fly you to Pennsylvania. And we can watch it in 4K on my big TV. The best story ever about Young Frankenstein. And I, I may leave this in, I may not, I don't know. But Mel Brooks, you know, he had made a couple of movies and he went in to pitch Young Frankenstein. And Gene Wilder was so hyped on the movie, right? It was his idea. Mm-hmm. And they went in and they pitched the film. 
And the studio loved it, right? And they're like, that's great, that's great. And they settled on a budget, you know? They're like, how, do you, how much money do you need? And Mel's like, I don't know, I'll take this much. And he said, great. They get to the elevator, and right as the elevator doors are closing, Mel goes, oh, by the way, we're shooting it in black and white. And then leaves. <laughs> and he says that, like, I think, and, and forgive me, but this is the way he puts it. He says that basically every Jew in Hollywood came running down the hallway at him. <laughs> like, every Jewish lawyer and producer that they had in Hollywood came screaming down the hall at him to grab him. <laughs> And they ended up shaving off a little bit off the budget because of the black and white. Oh, man. So we'll see you guys next week. Until then, I'm Chad. I'm Nick. Everybody, you know, stay safe out there and stuff. Come, let's mix where Rockefellers walk with sticks or rumbarellas in their mitts. Feet of Lunatic Daring is written and produced by Chad J. Shonk and hosted by Chad J. Shonk and Nicholas Jackson. Music by Seth Potowitz. And a proud production of Antithesis Audio. Well, that was different. Yep, lousy, but, but different. different. <laughs> <laughs>